Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Whatever time of day it is when you may be tuning in, this is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's lesson in our Beaming at the Bema series, Preparing for the Afterlife, and this is lesson eight of our Bema Seat series. And so welcome to you. I'm thrilled that you joined in to to this series and are are joining with us. I pray it's being a blessing to you. I want to first discuss just a brief review we've talked about in other lessons, what the Bema Seat is and what it is not, who it's for and who it is not, and the that the focus on this judgment for every believer is on stewardship We've looked at how the works, our works will be tested through the fire. And we talked in the last lesson or so about regrets for those things that would be burned up, but yet rewards for the things that are of eternal fruit. And so we want to pick up there and we want to look this time on rewards and promise. And so I first want to begin in our base verse, which is in second. Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And that word bad there is just talking about useless. It's worthless. They burn up and they're, they're of no eternal value. So we, t- we discussed how the fire is going to test everything and how the rewards and the the, uh, result of the fire will determine rewards. We've We've looked at the fact that we all will suffer some degree of regrets, but that we will also have the opportunity for promised rewards. And it's interesting because in the last lesson, I just quickly want to review some of these because Scripture promises rewards for many things. Last lesson, I believe I went over about 13 of them. And they range from having a great reward for being persecuted and martyred for the Lord, uh, loving those who hate you, giving of offerings, having prayer and intercession and fasting. There is um, a reward for receiving God's people in hospitality, welcoming them in, caring for them. There's a reward for a cup of cold water you give someone in his name. There is a a reward for being good and kind to those who hate you and those who cannot pay you back. There's a reward for your input into a person's life, whether they be lost or saved, to cause them to come to Christ or to help them grow in Christ. There's a reward for obeying what God's called you to do willingly. There's a reward for your uh, preserving because of your faith and obedience to Jesus Christ and freedom from tradition and regulations of men and of the world. And we saw, we closed last week and last lesson with this verse in Colossians 3, 23 through 24. And in 2 John 1, 8, we looked at Colossians 3 tells us, whatever we do, do it for the Lord and he will reward us. And then at the end, 
2 John 1, 8, we saw how the goal is that we are to receive a full reward. That's the desired end. So today, we're going to continue forward with that, remembering that the goal is a full reward. In 2 John 1, 8, John writes, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. That is the goal, that we will receive a full reward. That's the same kind of thing that Jesus was talking about when he spoke in John fifteen sixteen about the fruit that remains. So now that we've looked at many ways in which we would be rewarded for various services to the Lord, various ways we minister to people on the Lord's behalf, various things that we are called to do, and ways in which we are using our callings and our gifts to serve the Lord. Now let's consider what are the rewards that Scripture might tell us about. Well, we don't know for certain, you know, exactly how the rewards are going to go in terms of what they're going to be, what they're going to look like, etc. The one thing that I can tell you is that the money and material things and other things that we may consider as wonderful prizes here mean nothing in God's sight and in God's economy and in God's wonderful heaven, they will be useless. As a matter of fact, gold to the Lord is asphalt. It's, it paves his streets. So God is the God who owns everything. He doesn't, he doesn't need or desire these material things that we would place so much value on in this life. That's not the way God looks at it. So the rewards will be more in the line of giving true fulfillment and joy to us, as well as how we spend eternity with him, determining that. So we want to look at some of that today, and I want to take some examples and indications from Scripture to consider the kind of rewards that we will have. The first place that I want to talk about is in the parable of the talents. And in the parable of the talents, which is given to us in Matthew chapter 25, and I'm not going to read the entire thing, but you can read it in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 28. No, excuse me, 29, I believe. And I want us to talk about it just briefly. Jesus is telling a parable here or a story that conveys a spiritual truth. So he talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a man that travels to a far country, called his servants and delivered goods to them. So he's called his people together. He's, he's trying to show them that he is going to be going away in a far country, but he's giving them some responsibilities. He's depositing things in them that he wants them and us to, to use for his glory. So he tells about the talents and he says, you know, to, to one he gives five, to another he gives two, to another he gives one. 
And so he goes away. And then it says in verse 19, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. This is a parable pointing to the Bema seat where we will be accounting in stewardship for our stewardship, accounting in how we took what he gave us and what we did with it, whether our works were good and profitable and bearing fruit or whether they were bad in the sense that they were useless and burn up in the fire. So the five talents, the one who had gotten the five, comes and he brings five more, and he is blessed of the Lord. He says, well done, good and faithful servant, etc. Same thing with the two. And they're both rewarded, not because it was based upon the amount, but it was based upon faithfulness to whatever they were given. That is the basis. And then we read about the one. And he went and hid his. He did not do what his master intended and expected him to do. And so the master was very angry with him about that. And he did not receive any form of a reward at all. And then he concludes saying, For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And so we see that in that parable. So in the talents, they received more talents or more given. They they received a duplication of whatever they had been given. Now, this, I believe, may speak to us. I don't know what these talents will represent in the sense of the actual rewards on that day, but it may not be anything tangible as much as a fullness and an eternal degree of gifts that were given to us so that we can continue to serve him with those. In in a way that we can't explain and and don't fully comprehend because these things are too wonderful for us to fully know, yet we will serve with him. We will rule and reign and serve with the Lord in the millennial kingdom and throughout eternity. We are going to be working and serving with him there. And so I believe that there's some degree of association perhaps with this, that on that day, because this parable is obviously pointing us to the Bema seat, which is when we will stand and give an account for our stewardship, which is exactly what the parable is talking about. So there's some degree of connection, and perhaps it's in the fullness and the eternal degree of the gifts that we were given, that they will come to their full potential. They will come to their fullness at that time, and we will be granted even more or even more effectiveness in some way. That may be something that will help us understand the parable of the talents, but we do know that it's applicable to what Jesus is trying to teach us here, and there will be an accounting for our stewardship, and Jesus promises rewards based on faithfulness. Then he gave us the parable of the minas in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. In Luke chapter 19, verse 11 through 27, he tells us about the parable of the minas. Now, I want to read a few of these verses. 
Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So we know that this also is associated with Jesus going away and giving things to us, leaving us with responsibilities for which we will then give an account when he returns, when that day comes. So he is going away to a far country. He's going to receive a kingdom and he's going to return. So he calls his servants, delivers to them 10 minas, and says to them, do business till I come. In other words, some translations say, occupy till I come. In other words, keep doing the work, keep trading, keep doing my business, keep taking care of my affairs on my behalf while I'm gone. And so if you go on down, verse 15, and so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, so this is pointing us to the Bema Seat Judgment or to, to this coming day when the Lord is going to have received the kingdom, have the authority to take up his kingdom, and we will be standing and giving account for these things. So in this case, he gives a minus, which is a, a type of um, money. It's a, it's a weight of some kind of coin and money. And the result for them, for their faithfulness with the minas, is that they receive the reward of authority over certain cities. The one that had received the most minas got authority over 10 cities, I believe it was. And so they have a certain number of cities. In other words, they are ruling perhaps with Christ in some form of delegated authority, it's exousia, that right and that privilege to rule as an ambassador, an emissary of some kind for the Lord. Most likely, this will be that we will be serving him and ruling and reigning with him during the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom of Jesus when he rules from Jerusalem on earth. Then, I want to look next at what the Bible tells us about crowns that are given as rewards. Now, the word for crown that's used here is Stephanos, and it's the type of crown that was given as a wreath or garland prize to winners in public games. It was also a badge of honor, could be a sign of nobility or royalty, but it was also those types of crowns that that were given to winners in games after they had run their race. So let's consider the crowns that the Bible says that we will receive. One, and these are in no particular order, but I do want to mention there are five that specifically are mentioned in the scriptures in the New Testament. One is the crown of righteousness. This crown of righteousness is spoken of in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
I want to read verses 1 through 8 for the context of this. This is the last chapter of the last book that Paul is leaving with the church when he knows he is about to be martyred. And so he these, in essence, become his last words on his deathbed, what he really wants the church to hear from him. And I want to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Second Timothy. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So here we see that Paul is charging him because there is a coming appointed day of judgment where we will answer for everything that we've been instructed, everything we've been expected to do, what God has deposited in us. And so he's commissioning Timothy here and telling him, make sure you stay true to God's word. Make sure you do what God has called you to do. And then he goes down in verse six and he says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up or reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul here is telling us in some of his very last words on earth that there's coming a day of judgment, that day, he calls it here, and there is going to be the Lord, the righteous judge, who will be handing out these crowns. And this crown he mentions is the crown of righteousness. That speaks of a crown that is awarded to someone who has been faithful to live right, to live a life of holiness, who has gone against the culture, who has gone against what's popular and what, you know, the Bible talks about um, straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to life. But, but there, you know, there are few that find that one. There are many that walk on the the broad road, but it's going to lead them to destruction. So Paul is speaking of the one here that will be faithful in living a life of righteousness, even if they're few, even if they have to go it alone, because it is a straight and narrow path. But he says that if you are living right and loving the coming of Jesus, if you are looking forward to his coming, if you are looking forward with anticipation and pleasure at Jesus returning, then this crown will be awarded to you. It's the crown of righteousness. Righteousness matters. 
holy living matters. It will be rewarded on that day. It may never be noticed here. It may never be awarded here. You may even be laughed at here because of it, because you are different and you don't live like everybody else lives, but it will be rewarded on that day. God will see to it. There is a crown of righteousness that Paul says will be not to him only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And when we love his appearing, we will live right. John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, he says that those that have this hope, the hope of Jesus coming back within them purifies himself. So you're going to live a life of purity, a life of righteousness when you have that hope of Jesus' return and you are loving his appearing. Praise God. And God is going to reward that with a promised crown of righteousness according to Scripture. Then, then there is a crown of glory. I want to read in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. In 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, who is that? That's Jesus. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So there is a promised crown of glory. This one, according to Peter here, is for those who are shepherding and helping and teaching, ministering to the body of Christ, to the church, to the members of the church. This could not only just be for pastors or bishops or overseers, but it could also include teachers and other ministers maybe home group leaders or care group leaders, those who are literally touching and having interaction with the flock as some form of overseers to help shepherd them, to help draw them to Jesus, to help them grow as disciples in Jesus Christ. And he says, do it for the Lord. Do it not serving as overseers, but not by compulsion. In other words, you're not making them do this, and you're not doing it out of some somebody beating you over the head, but you're doing it willingly because you love God's people and you want to see them grow in him. He says, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. In other words, not because you're greedy, but because you really want to do it because God's put your that love in your heart and that desire in your heart to help serve and see that his body is growing up in him healthily. And he says, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples. 
instead of being lords over them and trying to force them to do things, you are living it out in front of them. And through that, they are watching your example. And you are living in such a way that they're desiring also to be like that and to live like that. Paul said in one place, imitate me as I follow and imitate Christ Jesus. So there is a place for that. And the promise here is that these people, whoever is involved in this type of ministry to the body of Jesus Christ and fulfills what Peter has told us here, that when the chief shepherd comes, Jesus, the chief shepherd, he is going to then give a crown of glory to these, a special crown of beauty and of weight and of honor and of value. Then, then there is a crown of what we'll call incorruption or a crown that will not perish. For this one, I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And then he goes on and he talks about how he tries to identify with all the various people in order to win them to the Lord. He's trying not to offend anyone intentionally, but rather to speak to them in the way that they can receive so that he can win them to the Lord. So that's what he's talking about. He says, to the weak I became as weak. This is in verse 22 so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled in all things self-discipline. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So Paul is saying here, that there is an incorruptible or an imperishable crown, and it is for those who faithfully run their race. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, speaks about how we're surrounded by so many witnesses in heaven that we need to run our race, laying aside anything that would weigh us down, laying aside distractions and, and any kind of sinfulness, and really paying attention so that we run the race to win. Paul is saying here, run so that you will obtain it. Now that doesn't mean we're competing in this race one with another, and I'm going to make sure I get it so that you don't. It's not that. That's not what he's saying. He's telling every single Christian to run run your race with the determination, focusing on the goal, not giving up, being trained and self-disciplined so that you will obtain your prize. 
because it's an incorruptible, imperishable prize, and that prize is worth it. The end goal is worth it. Don't quit. It is a a crown that is undying. It is enduring. It's not subject to decay or tarnishing. And it is a continuous, continuing crown of incorruption. And that is for those who will finish their race, run their race, and do it to win that prize. Do it as unto the Lord. Hallelujah. Next, we want to look at the crown of rejoicing. I want to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So I see this as a crown of rejoicing in the sense that 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 is, we want to see Christians mature in the Lord, those that we have invested in, that they will spend eternity and reach the goal of receiving that full maturity in Christ and be perfected in Jesus. Philippians chapter 4 verse 1 and Colossians 1 verse 27 through 29 speak of this. And in those passages, Paul is saying also, I want to see you mature at the Lord. That's a crown of rejoicing to me. You are my joy and my crown. I've invested in you. I've tried to teach you the right way. I've tried to live the example in front of you. I want to see you. That will be a crown of rejoicing to be able to know that you made it. You made it strong. You're mature at his coming. So that formed, at least in Paul's mind, a crown of rejoicing. So perhaps there is some form of that that would be included in this. This is something the scripture speaks of. Then the fifth one is a crown of life. And I want to read two places that speak of this one. The first place is found in James chapter 1, verse 12. And it says this, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The second scripture is found in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we see the second scripture that speaks of the crown of life. And I want to read that to you. He says this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. 
Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The churches, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So in both of these passages, we read about this crown of life that is going to be awarded to some. Some, I believe, may call this the martyr's crown. It's those who will be faithful in holy living, even to the point of death. Those who endure persecution and troubles and trials and tribulations, as well as those who endure temptation without falling into sin. Those who will learn and become able to have the victory over that sin. Those who will say no to temptation. And once they have been tested and approved, this is another crown promised to those who fall into this category. And it is called the crown of life. And notice this. Jesus even says here, be faithful until death. Don't give up at any point along the way. Be faithful until death. Because when we cross through the door of death, according to scripture, the Lord says he will give us the crown of life. I believe he's going to be right on the other side. And he's going to be handing us this crown of life. Maybe at this Bema seat, I don't know, but there is a crown of life that is promised for faithfulness all the way through, even through the door of death. Next, I want to look at Revelation chapter 3, and I want to read verses 7 through 12 to leave us with this thought, and then I want to look at a couple of other things in the scriptures as we consider more in the area of rewards. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 12 says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my commandment to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus promises he's coming quickly, and he says, do not lose your crown. Hold on. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. In other words, don't give up and don't lose heart. Keep the faith. Stay steadfast. 
Don't let anyone cause you to fall away and lose your crown. We've come too far to turn back now, in a sense. That's what one old old song says. Now, I want to look at John chapter 4 as we consider this thought as well. I love this, and I want you to be encouraged by this. Because in John chapter 4, in John chapter 4, I want to read verse 31 through 38. He's, Jesus has been talking to the woman at the well, and she's now run back to the city. She's excited. He's told her everything. She believes in him. She knows he's the Messiah, and she's going in and evangelizing the city. And this is the Samaritan city. So this is where the Samaritans live, who were hated by the Jews. So. Let's pick up in the reading in verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. So here Jesus is promising that there will be a rejoicing together. So I believe there is some form. I don't know exactly how it's all going to be, but I do believe that there will be some form of a reward and a rejoicing party, perhaps, of some kind for every single person that has been involved in a particular work or in blessing particular people or whatever. There'll be a way where they will be rejoicing together. There'll be some form of recognition of that, some form of reward for that in some way. Everyone who has shared in the work of an individual or of certain group of people will be rewarded together. There will be that time where they will rejoice together. There will be a sharing in the reward for all who have had input. Now, let's talk about this for just a moment. Let me look at it in a maybe a practical sense that might help us understand what I'm saying here. Let's say that maybe there is a mother or a grandmother or a grandfather or father that is, you know, working hard, raising a family, and praying for them, seeking God for them. And let's say the child grows up and perhaps runs away from the, the things that he knows to be true. Maybe he wants to go out and, and he um, goes into prodigal living, kind of like that prodigal son, wasteful living. 
and he gets involved in things he shouldn't be. But that parent, that grandparent is still praying, praying, praying faithfully for God to work and for God to draw that son or that daughter back to him, to, to establish him in the things that are right and in the things of God. And so let's say that you've got the, the mom or the dad or whoever praying for the child. And then let's say maybe the child gets a job and the coworker is a Christian and the coworker begins to, to befriend this child, this son or this daughter and begins to talk to them and, and maybe invites them to come to church or to a small Bible study. Maybe, um, maybe that person just becomes a friend to them and they go to lunch or they go to dinner after work sometime and they, they start sharing life together. And this coworker really cares about what's going on in the son and the daughter and maybe becomes a confidant to that person and can be a source of strength for them, a source of encouragement to point them to Jesus. And maybe this person invites them to come to a small group study where there's, there's a minister, a teacher, or, or a fellow Christian that's leading that, that's facilitating that. And they're studying perhaps, let's say in the book of John or something like that. And so in this relationship, they're, they're building relationships, even in this small group. And somehow this, person, this son or this daughter gets drawn to Jesus, calls upon the Lord, gets saved and, and asks forgiveness for his sin of the Lord. And God washes his sins away and makes him a part of the family of God. And then let's just say that that home group continues and that, that son or that daughter stays in that home group and grows in Jesus Christ and then begins to you know, interact with other people and, and share what he knows. And he begins to input in their life and all of that. Well, somehow, according to this scripture, I believe there's going to be some kind of way where all of those that have been involved and interconnected with this person in the discipleship, in the evangelism and discipleship of that individual, of that prodigal son or daughter, all of them will be able to rejoice together but because of whatever they have done. And Jesus is teaching us that. We might not be the one that gets to reap the harvest of the person, drawing them in, in the sense to call upon the name of the Lord right then and there and get saved. But we might be the person that plants the first seed. We might be the person, we might be the parent or the grandparent that's doing the praying all alone in the closet. Because Jesus said that when you pray to go in and shut yourself off in your closet or shut away from all distractions and get alone with God and call out to him and the father who sees in secret will reward you openly. That's what Jesus promised. So that parent, that grandparent is going to have some degree of reward in that and will be able to rejoice in that along with the coworker and the, the pastor or the, the home group leader and the other home group people that were helping this person grow in Jesus Christ, all of them together are going to have a party. According to this word from the Lord, they're going to rejoice together. There will be, this Bema seat is going to be a great day of rejoicing. We have no idea how much joy it will be for us and even for the Lord. He is going to have great joy 
in that day as well. Now, I want to finally just mention a couple of other things here as I draw down to a close. Lastly, I do want to mention another reward or part of what these this reward and this end result is to be according to Scripture, at least the indications of Scripture at this Bema seat, is garments, preferably and particularly the wedding garment. The Bible in some places and in some versions calls it kind of a robe of righteousness. It's really fine white linen. And according to Scripture, it represents the righteousness or the righteous acts or deeds or works of the people of God, of the saints. And it is, in fact, the wedding garment. Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, about the importance of having a wedding garment. It was a story he told there about the wedding and, you know, lots of people had been invited and different people came. And then there was one found that didn't have a wedding garment. And, you know, he was cast out because he didn't have the wedding garment. So the wedding garment is very, very important. It is fine linen. The very first place that I found fine linen expressed in the scripture was when Pharaoh decked out Joseph in the fine linen when he exalted and promoted him to, you know, out of the prison and and up to the place of authority in the kingdom there in Egypt. And so it, it also is found in the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus, that the rich man had been clad in this fine linen. So it appears to be a sign of some type of royal type or fine apparel, maybe something that nobility would wear. It would be a rich garment. It would not be a common garment. So this is also a part of what we as the bride of Christ will receive. I want to read you about that wedding garment in Revelation chapter 19. And I want to read beginning in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her, It was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then if we look down in verse 14, notice this. When Jesus, this is in the section when we actually see Jesus' official second coming back to the earth. And it says this in verse 14. And the armies in heaven that would include us, that will be us, clothed in fine linen. That's how we know that. White and clean, clothed in clothed in fine linen, white and clean. What's that fine linen? It's the wedding garments. It's the garments that we were just given. We were given these at this Bema seat for our wedding. It's the wedding garment. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him 
on white horses. That's us coming behind Jesus. We're not going to be lifting a finger to do anything that day except to exalt Jesus, to praise him. We might be like the cheerleading squad going back there going, yes, Jesus, you go, God, you go, God, you go, Jesus, because he's the one that just with the very sword that's coming out of his mouth, the very word that he's going to say, he will defeat all of his enemies in that day. And he'll begin to ascend toward his throne in Jerusalem and take up his kingdom that is an everlasting dominion that has been promised him and given him by the Father on that day. Praise be to God. And so we're coming back behind him and we're just going to be cheerleading. We're just going to be praising him and glorifying him. Hallelujah. But we will be wearing those this wedding garment. Praise God. And we do have a wedding coming up because we are the bride of Christ. Hallelujah. 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 Now, I want to begin to draw us to a close with these final thoughts. First of all, remember the rewards will determine how we spend eternity. It's not determining where we spend eternity, but how we spend eternity. And I believe on that day, I believe this is true, that there will be things that God reveals and rewards us for, and we will just be flabbergasted. We will just go, wow, I had no idea that even mattered to you. I had no idea you wrote that down. I had no idea you kept a record of that. Never would I have dreamed or thought that it even mattered. We see it as maybe in this life so minuscule and so minute. And yet I believe there our minds are going to be blown, so to speak, in just lingo that we could understand. We're going to be flabbergasted at all that he will reward us for and all that matters to Jesus. And he gives us a clue when he tells us some of the things that we will be rewarded for, including even the giving of a cup of cold water to one who is thirsty. That's how much he's going to be excited about rewarding us. And that's how much he has promised for us. And we are going to just be declaring Man, I never dreamed. I never dreamed that that even mattered. It will be just a grand and glorious event for us. Praise God. Holy living and faithfulness matters because we will give an account for stewardship. And just like we saw in 2 John 1, 8, the goal is that we receive a full reward. Let's read that again. 2 John 1, 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. That's the goal, is that we receive a full reward. Now I want to consider this. Perhaps this will be the greatest reward of all. Let me read you 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want to read verses 5 through 7. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come 
from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, Paul is telling us here that on that day, the greatest reward of all is going to be that each one's praise comes directly from God. Now, God's not going to praise us as if we were God's. That's not what he's talking about here. But he is talking about a commendation from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's a commendation. That's a commendation from the Lord. That's the greatest reward of all. And then he goes on and he talks about him and Apollos. And he says, you know, we got to realize that first of all, everything we have that has been deposited in us and gifted in us that we are to answer for has been a gift from the Lord. It's not something we can boast in. But we have done it humbly to the Lord, and God will commend us for that. Each one's praise is going to come directly from the Lord. Commendations. That, to me, is probably the greatest reward of all. And I want to read you one final scripture, because I think this may give us an indication of the way we might be responding to all of this grand and glorious event and all of the various rewards and ways that we might be commended by the Lord. It is found in Isaiah chapter 26, and it's verse 12. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. A recognition that whatever fruit does remain, whatever gold, silver, precious stones goes through the process of the testing of the fire and comes out and remains on the other side, whatever crowns we receive, whatever authority we receive, whatever type of you know benefit we receive from the Lord on that day in the sense of a reward for our service, it's all because of him to begin with. It's not us. I believe that's one of the reasons the scriptures speak about casting crowns before his feet, because we recognize that he's the one that has done these things through us. And that may be the cry that we have on that day. And I pray that this series is encouraging us to live a life so that we will be greeted by our Lord with these words. Well done good and faithful servant. May that be so for you and for me. In Jesus' name, may you be blessed and join us again as we begin to draw to a close in this series. We may have one more lesson, maybe a couple, but I believe we're drawing to a close in this series, and I pray that this has been a blessing to you and that you can complete this series with us if we are able to complete this. I pray that that God will bless you. I pray that you will be living a life of holiness and be able to enjoy the Bema Seat judgment that awaits every Christian. 
God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.